Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is a professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College in Claremont, California, Phil Zuckerman. He's the author of What It Means to Be Moral, Living the Secular Life, Faith No More, and Society Without God. Phil writes a regular blog for Psychology Today called The Secular Life, and in 2011, he founded the first secular studies department in the nation. In this episode, we get to know Phil and the different versions of secularism. We discuss the arguments against humanism and whether or not Trump's an atheist, how mortality works without God, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Phil as much as I did, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. Where are we finding you today? I am in Claremont, California, which is a town of about 35,000 people just outside of Los Angeles, kind of near Pasadena. Um, Yeah, in Southern California. Awesome. Must be nice. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Pacific Palisades, which is another small town uh, of greater Los Angeles, uh, but on the beach uh, near Santa Monica and Malibu. Okay. Were you raised in a religious household? Uh, yes and no. So I tend to think of religion in terms of the three B's, belief, behavior, and belonging. Um, in terms of belief, no. Um, my parents were non-believers. My dad was an atheist and my mom just didn't think about these kind of things. Both, uh, all four of my grandparents were non-believers. My dad's parents were atheists. My mom's parents were just kind of agnostic or more into hiking and whatnot and classical music. So uh, there was no religious belief. I was never taught to believe in God or heaven or prayers or angels or karma or any of that stuff. That said, all four of my grandparents were Jewish refugees, so we had a very strong Jewish identity as a kind of religious slash ethnic marker or or um, community that we belonged to. And we did participate in some Jewish rituals and holidays. We celebrated Hanukkah and Passover with the family and uh, did some Jewish rituals. So uh, we were sort of religious in terms of tradition and heritage but not in terms of belief, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. So in your book, Living the Secular Life, we learn what the transition to secularism will look like. Hopefully you can clarify for us what secularism is and what it isn't. Mm, you bet. Yeah, you got all these terms out there. Secular. I'll start with, I mean, secular, secularism, secularization. I can break these down quickly. So secular is just a, a word we use uh, to refer to non-religious. So something that's not religious by default is secular. So uh, uh, Kanye can put out a secular song about, I don't know what Kanye raps about, but if he raps about Jesus, it's no longer a secular song. A person who's non-religious would be identified as secular. And there's different varieties. Um, When we talk about secularism, though, things get a little tricky uh, with the ISM at the end because ism suggests movement or ideology or politics or something like that. So there's basically three types of secularisms. And these are only based on how how they're used by people, right? Words only have meaning in usage. Words only have meaning in context. So just in my reading of newspapers and magazines and blogs and websites and in my watching of TV and news reports and movies and in my listening to speakers and just kind of assessing 
history and society, it seems as though there's kind of three ways in which people use the term secularism. The first is a strictly political sense, and this goes back to Jeffersonian's ideas of the separation of church and state, uh, France, uh, the French idea of laicite when the French Republic was being created. Also, you can see it in Mexico's early history of the founding of the Mexican Republic, but the idea that government and religion should remain separate, that they both are better and pure when kept apart, that government should not be in the business of promoting any one particular religion or any religion at all. It should stay neutral on those questions. And conversely, religion should not be running the country. It should not be running schools or hospitals or, um, well, privately it could, but not through taxpayer money. So, you know, the religion should not be running this sort of civil services and public services that we all depend on. And so that secularism is kind of a political ideology that has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in God. It just has to do with what you think the relationship ought to be between religion and government. In fact, when Jefferson coined that phrase, wall of separation between church and state, he was writing a letter to Baptists in Connecticut, assuring them that there would be no, you know, government religion that might persecute them because at the time they were uh, dissenters, they were religious minorities. So it was, it was the idea that, um, that every all religions would have a right to exist or no religion at all because the government wouldn't be in that business. And that's that version of secularism. The second version of secularism <clears throat> has to do more with what I would call philosophical skepticism or or, or um, skeptical secularism, secularism, where it's actually people trying to disabuse others of their religious faith or involvement. So these are these are people actively engaged in arguing against religion, trying to deconvert people, trying to create movements to stymie or limit religion. So secularism, in that sense, is you know atheists who are writing books promoting atheism. Right. I was going to say that sounds exactly like. Like atheism. Exactly. People, well, you could be an atheist and not promote it. You're just, an atheist would just be, you know, hey, I, I don't believe in God and now I'm going to play soccer. But but if you're actively, you know, writing blog posts and and writing letters to your government and trying to pass legislation, if you're if you're actually promoting uh, that kind of thing, that's that's a version of secularism in there. The, the, the Soviet Union, you know, actively tried to destroy religion, and that was a version of secularism. You can also have people in the United States that are trying to um, promote humanism, critical thinking, skepticisms, um, and trying to sort of debunk religious claims and show them to to be false or whatnot. So that that's a kind of like movement or ideological secularism that wants to make society less religious. It doesn't just want to keep you know society and government separate. It actually wants to see religion reduced. It wants to see religion fade away. It sees religion as a hindrance to human progress. And so that's that kind of secularism. And then the third is just what I would call cultural or de demographic secularism, which is just a term that some people employ to, to show that that society is becoming less religious just by default. You know, more stores are open on Sunday. Fewer people are going to church. Uh, people take, you know, can make Broadway musicals, making fun of religion. It's no big deal. Um, people are just religions starting losing its 
its power and prestige or status in society. So, and not through active atheists promoting it, but just through a kind of organic process of differentiation where more and more aspects of our lives are, are differentiated from religious concerns. More people are on the web, you know, on Facebook. Uh, people just aren't praying as much anymore. No one's reading the Bible anymore. And so we sort of talk about growing secularism or increasing secularism sometimes in that just kind of demographic or cultural way. So that's kind of, that's, and then, you know, so that's how I understand the kind of three versions of secularism. And I'm happy to explore any one of those at greater length. Yeah, I would love to. So the first version, is it safe to say that secularism is a commitment to keeping religion out of politics and public policy? Whereas the second with atheism, it's more of a movement to say it needs to fade away. And the third is more of just an observation of what is happening and, and just looking at the times. Spot on. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> awesome. So what are, just curious, what are the arguments against humanism? Well, okay. So my understanding of humanism is it's a orientation or belief that people have great capacity for good. In fact, their capacity for good overrides their malevolent tendencies, which we do have as well, but that when we look at humanity in total, we think that most people, most of the time, don't want to harm others, uh, are empathetic, would like to just get on and get by, and that there's a, a, a general desire for justice in the world and fairness in the world and freedom and liberty and democracy and equal rights and human rights, and that that's the main default position of humans. Of course, there are exceptions and there are wickedness, and we all have a capacity to, to uh, not live up to those ideals, but that those are the ideals and that humans are the only ones that can really affect change in this world. Like if we wanna see justice, we gotta do it ourselves. We can't pray for it. We can't look for any saviors or messiahs that any progress that has happened on planet Earth is the, is the result of human will, human effort, human tenacity, human creativity, love, imagination, that nothing happens, whether it's uh, you know implants in our ears that help us hear better or democracy or uh, you know uh, improvements in communication, technology, healthcare, that all just comes from human ingenuity, human know-how, human tenacity, and human will. So we place, you could say, our faith in humans. So that's my understanding of humanism. So what would be the main arguments against that? Well, they would be, um, number one, humans are intrinsically wicked. Now that is the message of Christianity. It is, it, it, William, Attorney General William Barr just proclaimed that at the University of Notre Dame two weeks ago when he gave a speech on religious liberty. The default position in the views of Catholicism and Christianity is that we are born sinners, that we are born wicked. We are born uh, in need of salvation, in need of a savior. So if left alone, it's Lord of the Flies. It's dog eat dog. We will just murder each other and steal from each other and lie to each other. And so we can't rely on humanity to save itself. Humanity needs a savior. So that's one critique of humanism. Another critique of humanism isn't necessarily steeped in religion, but I would just call it kind of a pessimism about the hu about human nature. So I've met many secular people who are like, ah, humans are awful, we're terrible, we're stupid, we destroy the planet, we we commit genocides, we drop nuclear bombs, and, and anybody who has faith in humanity is just clueless, you know, we're just a bunch of rotten scoundrels, and they don't really see any hope, so they don't think Jesus is going to save us, or Allah, they just kind of 
have that skepticism like, oh, you humanists are too optimistic. You're not grounded in reality because the reality is life sucks and people suck. And so I'd say that the two biggest critiques of humanism are we can't save ourselves because we need a magical or invisible God or Messiah to save us. And without that Messiah or that magical God doing things for us, answering our prayers, we're screwed. And then on the secular side, I guess critiques of humanism are it's too optimistic. It's not grounded in reality. People are just jerks. And and if you place your hope in humanity, you'll always be disappointed. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So going back to the three versions of secularism, do you fall into one of these camps? I fall in, I would say, all of them in, and I'll tell you why. So number one, I'm a strong believer in the separation of church and state. Um, when I look at the history, at least of Western civilization, I don't know enough about other parts of the world, but I see that whenever a government takes a position about religion, the results are not good because the the dissenters will suffer. So if a, if a, if a, if, a, if a government claims that it is Jewish, non-Jews will suffer. If a government claims that it's Christian, non-Christians will suffer. Even if even if everybody's Christian, there's going to be divisions on how they live their Christianity. So even in a Christian society, there are people who can be seen as not being Christian enough or being Christian in the wrong way. So anytime government picks a side, picks a team in religion, the results will be persecution, ostracism, stigmatization, denial of certain equal rights, et cetera, et cetera. So I believe that government should just get out of that game and be neutral. I don't think government neutrality is oppressing religion. I mean, so, so yes, I strongly believe in the separation of church and state in a democracy, in a pluralistic world where people have different beliefs or no beliefs. You cannot have government taking a side there. And just as an example, imagine if you had a grievance with your city they gave you a ticket when they shouldn't have or they're taxing you in a way they shouldn't or there's been a problem and you want to go to your city hall and register a complaint and you have a hearing and every member of the city council stands up and prays to Allah but you don't because you don't you're not a muslim but everybody in the room is a muslim and everybody on the city council is a muslim and the mayor is a muslim and they all say let's all pray to, pray to Allah before we you know get to the city business but you're not a muslim and you don't stand up and you don't pray you're at a disadvantage when your case comes up it's simply the reality and so i would say that schools and courts and dmvs have no business promoting religion or even you know even symbolically just get out of that business and attend to giving people their driver's licenses or hearing their grievances at city councils or teaching them math or whatever so i'm very much a secularist in the separation of church and state sense no i would agree with that but aren't politicians yeah. at a disadvantage if they do if they claim to be non-religious as far as votes go in this country they are in other countries they're not this is this is the point i'm trying to make so in a society that's very religious um, then yeah, politicians are going to be at a real disadvantage. I mean, nobody can, I mean, I think Donald Trump is an atheist, but he has pandered to the evangelicals and they're his strongest base of support. So you, have, you play that game, you know, you, you, either you are religious. Hey, that's fine. I, if you're, if your values come from your faith, I, that's fine by me. What are those values? I don't, you know, I yeah. care about the values, not their source. You Why know? do you think Trump is an atheist? Um, I think he has no – I don't believe that he's ever expressed a honest religious sentiment. He's never read the Bible. Every time he's – when he was asked point blank on TV 
what his favorite book of the Bible, he couldn't name one. And they repeatedly asked him and he just kept saying, oh, I like it all. I like it all. And they kept saying, but but give us one passage. Give us one quote. Um, so I don't think he I don't know if he reads anything. I don't know if he can read. I think he may have <laughs> a disability. And I'm not I'm dead serious. I've heard he likes pictures and graphs. So he yeah. may have dyslexia or some kind of learning disability. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what it seems. Now, of course, reading the Bible doesn't mean you're, you know, not reading the Bible doesn't mean you're an atheist, but I just don't believe he's truly a person of faith. I don't, I don't believe any expressions. He, he doesn't, I think he's purely, I mean, what do I know? Maybe he does believe in God. I, I guess I don't really have the data there, but I definitely don't believe he is the, he shares the same beliefs that of the evangelical Christians who support him, you know, that, that Jesus is his personal savior, that he has a relationship with God through Jesus, all those things. I don't think he really believes that at all, but I could be wrong. Yeah, definitely. So, so moving forward, obviously you say it, it doesn't belong in politics and public policy, but what about, does it belong in society? Yeah. So that's a good question. I guess this is, I, I am part of secularist groups and movements, and I do write blog pieces and books that are critical of religion. My position is what a person believes privately is their business. What a person does in the privacy of their own home, as long as it's not harming anyone, is their own business. So I am not, I don't want to disabuse people of their personal faith. I know many people of faith who are good wonderful, loving people, and their faith is part of the fuel and fire of their passion and of their values. Um, and I respect that tremendously because of, of how it makes them a better person in the world. So I, I don't think at root I want to destroy people's faith, their personal faith. My problem is when it becomes a public, <clears throat> excuse me, when they want to push their religion on others. So I'll give you an example. Um, if a person working at the DMV <clears throat> personally believes in Jesus and personally believes that God only wants men and women to marry in a monogamous relationship, that's fine. But then if someone, or not the DMV hall, but if someone comes to city hall, a gay couple and the, and the civil law that has been enacted by our government in a democratic process is that two men can marry. I don't think that religious person then has a right to deny them a marriage license. They have a right to quit that job if it goes against their conscience, just like I don't have to serve in the army if it violates my pacifism or whatnot. But I can't demand that the army, you know, kowtow to my religious beliefs. Like it's government by the consent of the governed, but we have constitutional rights that protect the rights of the minority. So it's not just majority rule. If 52% of America says all bald people are going to be slaves tomorrow, that violates the constitution, right? We have certain constitutional rights. So I fight against religion when I see that I think it's doing harm to society. And, and so on that sense, I want to keep religion in the personal private realm, not in the public realm. I don't like it, for example, that at a public school that is tax subsidized, a teacher leads children in a prayer that says we are one nation under God. Those words under God were not in the original pledge. They were inserted in the 1950s. The original pledge says one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all under God was put in there. And what that means is my children are taught every morning by their teacher and their principal that God is watching over us. And that just as I wouldn't want the pledge to say we are one nation and there is no God, you know, indivisible, like just stay out of it. Um, on the, and then finally, I would say, I also do believe that certain religious beliefs are 
um, can be damaging. So, for example, teaching children there's a hell, teaching children there's a devil. Islam is very big on hell. The hell in Islam is a horrible place, and when children are taught about it, I think that's damaging. When children are taught about Satan and devils and heavens and hells, I think that can be damaging. I don't want to. I don't want to take it too far here. I don't think people are walking around, you know, you know, eternally wounded because they were taught about it. But I've interviewed enough people who said that their the version of hell that they were taught about as children did cause them damage, did affect them psychologically later in life. I think. Some of the teachings that religion teaches about our sexuality can damage and, and a lot of people psychologically. So I guess what I would say is to me, religions are created by people. So they contain good and bad because I think there's a lot. In fact, I think they contain mostly good because I think there's mostly good in humans. But the bad parts are there. And I wish children were spared from some of those teachings. And I think um, I guess I'll just end by my diatribe on this one by saying when I look at the world's problems, I think we need to be rational and not superstitious. I think we need to rely on empirical facts and not prayers that don't work. I think the world needs reason now more than ever. So I do believe that religious superstitions, religious mythologies that don't bear on, that don't aren't going to help us solve problems should not have primacy of place in our public policy. Um, but again, if they're personally held by people, I have no problem there. Yeah, definitely. It's reason over rules. Mm -hmm. And I guess using science as well. I mean, we can look at the research on these issues and then make better moral decisions instead of <laughs> just relying on supernatural beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you in that second version of secularism, we talked about atheism and what differs like, I don't know, I'm not going to say you're an atheist, I don't know. But what is the difference between that and agnosticism? I mean, what's the difference yeah. in saying, if you, I'm an atheist, but I'm not acting on it, I'm not telling people that there should be no religion, but I'm also agnostic because I don't know. Right. Good questions. Good questions. Okay, so basically, this only relates to the God question. So, you know, there's a lot more to religion than just God. Like, you know, there's festivals and, you know, like music. Like I, I'm an, I am an atheist, but I, I still enjoy religious rituals. Like I don't have a problem going to a Passover or Hanukkah or celebrating Christmas. I'll even go to church with my in-laws and enjoy it. Like enjoy the music, the singing, the message, meeting people. So there's a lot to religion beyond God. But on the God question itself, Basically, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, and that's it. A theos, theos is Greek for God. A is the prefix, Greek prefix for without. So it's just without God. An atheist at, at, is nothing more than someone who does not believe in God. Obviously, in our culture, the word carries a lot of weight and, and means a lot more. People see an atheist as someone who's aggressively against religion, but really, it's just a statement about does someone believe in a God or not? God or gods? And if you don't believe in God or or gods, you are without belief in God. You're an atheist. So I don't believe in a God. To me, it's a matter of evidence. I don't see the evidence, so I don't believe in it. An agnostic term by Thomas Huxley, a coin, coined by Thomas Huxley in the 1800s, um, has to do with knowledge. So atheism is really about belief. Agnosticism is about is, is a statement about knowledge. So gnosis is Greek for knowledge, and then A is without knowledge. So an agnostic is someone who's saying, I don't know. I don't have enough information. It's a little bit like an undecided position. I can't say if there's a God for sure, but I can't say there isn't for sure. So sometimes it's like an atheist is a bit more convinced there's no God, and an agnostic, agnostic is sort of taking a, a little bit more of a mild position by saying like, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I just can't say I don't know. On the other hand, 
An agnostic is also someone who can say, I don't, I don't believe in God, but I don't know your, the answers to your questions. So, you know, one of my favorite well, or most annoying things is, is I always get people saying like, well, if there's no God, you know, where did everything come from? And it's like, I don't know. Like, you know, <laughs> ignorance is no excuse for then taking a belief in something that has no evidence. So the agnostic is content to say, I don't know where the universe came from. In fact, that's the more intellectually honest position. I'm not, I don't know why there's time and space. I don't know why there are weasels and pneumonia. I, I don't know why we're here or what it all means or how it began or how it ended. I'm without knowledge. I'm agnostic. So I call myself atheist because I don't believe in God, but I'm also agnostic because I don't know the answers to the big questions. And and most, you know, that's what they call the appeal to ignorance. If someone says to you, well, there must be a God, and you say no, and they say, well, but then how did everything come come about? That's an appeal to ignorance, meaning it's a fallacy of informal logic, meaning that you don't know enough about something, but it's not that doesn't justify then accepting a conclusion. It's just as like if you were to get on an airplane and the person next to you would say, hey, you know, the, the pilot's name is Root Beer. And you would say, what? The pilot's name is Root Beer? I don't, I don't, I find that hard to believe. And That's say, unfortunate, well, you, yeah. Yeah, do you know what the pilot's name is? And you're like, well, no. And they're like, boom, then it must be Root Beer. Like, no, they haven't proven the pilot. If you, you're not knowing the pilot's name doesn't prove their conclusion about the pilot's name. So it's the same thing about God and the universe. If someone says to me, well, where did the universe, you don't know, where did the universe come from? And I say, I don't know. That hasn't proved their theory It's <laughs> at all. It's a total non sequitur to say, because I don't know, you do. You know, bar barring evidence, we're all in the dark. So um, I guess I would say that, yeah, atheism, no belief in God, lacking belief in God, agnosticism, no knowledge of the questions, so don't know one way or the other. Yeah, and there's that quote that I don't know who said it, but honor those who seek the truth and beware of those who have found it. Why do you think humans are so... Why are you such an issue with the with uncertainty and unknowing and the fact that maybe there at one point there was nothingness? Yeah, that's a that's a deep question. You're right. I love that quote and uh I don't know the answer there. I I think um I think maybe fear is at play, right? The more knowledge we have, the more we feel like we're in control of things, right? If you just think about our evolutionary past for millions of years, you know, for 95% of our history as humans, we lived in small bands of between 20 and 80 people foraging in the in the wilderness, in nature, you know, hunting and gathering, building fires, uh, trying to get food, scared of other tribes on the other side of the hill, and I think, you know, knowledge was was some kind of power defense. If you understood how to make fire, you you were better at surviving. If you understood how to make how to hunt, you were better at surviving. If you understood what makes things happen or not, so I think we we have a natural, evolved desire to want to know, to understand. And when we don't know, it's scary, right? What is behind that? You know, what is making that noise? That's scary. What is that dark movement shadow behind the tree? That's scary. So yeah. I think we do have a desire to know things. Um, on the other hand, I will say I actually don't think the big existential questions haunt us to the degree that philosophers or religious, um, you know, leaders would would characterize it like. Yes, we all ponder sometimes why we're here, but not that much. I mean, really, we're thinking like how to get our neighbor's dog to quit barking and how are we going to afford groceries and what to do about this decision at work and, you know, how to coach our 
daughter's soccer team better? And does our wife love us or not? And, you know, like we're not really I don't think deep existential questions are at the core of our daily lives. Again, they come up now and then when you're looking at the stars at night or when you just got a diagnosis of cancer or when, you know, there are moments where we ponder the deep mysteries. But I don't think they're as pressing as a lot of philosophers and religious studies people make them out to be. I think they're a select group of people who may be obsessed about those things more than others. But most people, I think most of the time, are worrying about the things that affect them in their immediacy. And those big questions I don't think are as 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 prominent as some people would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in the camp where I do like to meditate on impermanence because I think it's a great tool to keep your passion for just life and everyone that you love in general. But it does sound like a lot of those uncertainties and looking for answers to those big questions is a coping mechanism for our fear of death and nothingness. And Yeah, and the thing about nothingness is, you know, I, I – I... You know, it's funny when you you have these ideas and you think you're like genius and then you find out like everybody's already had them. But I remember being like 14 or 15 and it and it dawned on me that, okay, well, one day I won't exist, you know, when after I die. But I didn't exist before I was born. And that doesn't cause me any fear or terror. I mean, I didn't exist in the 1600s or the 1700s or the, you know, 5000 years ago. And, you know, I think Bertrand Russell said it as well. But, you know, I remember that was very comforting to me being like, well, nothingness is not such a big deal. I think, um, you know, even the Greek Greek philosophers said this as well, that like non-existence is nothing to be afraid of. So, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the thing is you won't know. So exactly. don't be afraid of it because you won't know you're dead anyways. But that's that's the question that I ponder often, which I probably don't need to. But life and life may begin and end with birth and death. But does consciousness? I think so. I think consciousness is just something in the folds of our brain. Yeah. So Naval Ravikant is someone I admire greatly, and he once said that God is just a fancy term for the universe. What synonym would you use? I I guess I'm stuck on the kind of traditional God as a all-powerful being deity that creates things and destroys things. And so I guess for me, God, the closest thing to God in my life might be like apples. I really like them, and I just they sustain me <laughs> i don't know i don't have a synonym for god i i you know like i in fact i get a little bit i don't know like i remember sitting in a park one night day and meeting this woman and she kept saying to me like jesus is love and i was like well love is love like why are we jesus is jesus and love is love and if they're both one and the same then we could do away with one or the other like so i don't know god to me is i don't, I don't get into that you know when people say like I mean, I can't tell you how many times people say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but to me, God is just, you know, a force for good in the world or whatever. Like, well, and then someone else will say, well, God, well, God is just that, you know, that thing that makes us, you know, love or I don't know, like it gets really psychedelic. And so I don't really know what people mean when they say that. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's a force like a, like a, like a magnetic force. No, it's, you know, like, well, what do you mean? It's, it's a, it's, it's what binds all things it's like glue like what what are you saying so i tend to not use god ever and i don't and i find that whenever people do they don't really know what they're talking when you really push them and say like well what do you mean by that it quickly falls apart so so when someone says to me god is just synonymous with the universe that reminds me of spinoza and pantheism and it's like well if god is everything then god is nothing like then let's just get rid of the word like why do we you know it's like Let's just call it the universe. Why call it God? I just find it, 
I don't know. That, not not to be crotchety there, but that's where I come on that question. I re- no, I really appreciate that answer. So tell me about the seven secular virtues. Mm. Yeah, so that's something I developed in my latest book where <clears throat> what I find is, okay, <laughs> how can I give a short, cogent answer? There are a lot of secular people in the world today, more than ever, right? Huge chunks of humanity are non-religious. Um, 72% of people in Scotland, the majority of people in Estonia, Norway, uh, Czech Republic, um, China, Japan, South Korea, many parts of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, huge chunks of the world today are living their lives, people are living their lives without religion, without religious belief, without religious rituals, and without belonging to a religious group. So this is a big chunk of humanity. And it's almost like, oh, are they just nothing? No, they're not nothing. They're living their lives. They're raising their children. They're working and voting and hunting and playing games and falling in love. Like they're living their lives without religion. And what I have found is that we talk about virtues. It's, it's really easy to talk about those in a religious sense. Like, oh, what are the what are the vir- Christian Christian virtues? Oh, charity, love, forgiveness. Peace, you know, you can kind of think about, oh, what are the virtues in Judaism? I don't know, study, debate, questioning, worshiping God. You know, what are the virtues in Islam? Uh, Charity, making a pilgrimage to, you know, uh, following Allah, you know, believing in the prophet Muhammad, um, taking care of orphans, you know, tzedakah is a big, charity is a big uh, virtue. In fact, you got these five pillars of Islam, right? And you've got the 10 commandments. And and what I find is that, or Buddhism, what are the virtues of Buddhism? Like you could ask anybody, they'll be like, oh, you know, peaceful acceptance, you know, mindfulness, uh, you know, accept it, you know, accepting the world as it is. Like whether or not they're true, people associate certain things with certain religious groups for better or for worse, whatever. They're all great. I love virtues. But what in my I, I'm a sociologist. I study secular people and secular culture, and I've been doing it for about 15 years now. And what I notice is that there are virtues that secular people live by. They don't have them written down in a in a scroll. They don't put them on little doilies and hang them on the wall, but they are there. And I wanted to try and articulate them and 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 talk about how they function in secular culture. So they are things like living in reality is a secular virtue, right? It's the belief that. This is all there is, um, and magical prayers won't do anything, and we have to help ourselves. We have to fix things ourselves. We have to fight for things. They're not going to happen through prayer, right? Other, Another secular virtue is living in the here and now, knowing that this is all we've got for better. Like there's no afterlife, and that really changes the way you live. When you, If you don't think there's an afterlife, it's going to change how you interact in the world, how you interact with other people. And, and your kind of existential time here on earth. Other secular virtues, empathy and compassion. We base our morality on not harming other people and not causing suffering because we know what it's like to suffer. It's that simple. Our morality is not based on following rules or obeying deities. Our morality is simply based on our experience. We know what it's like to suffer, so we don't want others to suffer. It, and, and so we have compassion for those who are suffering and empathy, and that's what guides our moral compass. So that's why when we get to a question like gay marriage, we don't think, well, what does the Bible tell us or what does our God tell us? We say, well, are we causing suffering by denying two consenting adults to marry each other? Yeah. Like there's no reason to deny them the right to marry. It doesn't cause any harm. And in fact, denying them that right does cause harm. Um, it's why we are against drunk driving. Not because a God tells us you can't find anything about drunk driving in the Bible because it didn't exist. 
or rather driving didn't exist. And yet we can use empathy and compassion to say, yeah, drunk driving is bad because it can cause unwanted suffering. When you're driving a car, you might maim or kill or hurt someone. It's really simple. Other virtues include free thinking. We believe in the value of learning about, talking about, thinking about anything and everything, right? And a lot of Christ, a lot of religions like to shield the minds of their children or of their followers. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, it's like, no, no, you can't, you shouldn't read that. You shouldn't see that. You shouldn't talk about that. They're sinful. They're dangerous. And and and, and for secular people, their ideas are never dangerous. They may have bad consequences, but we should learn about them and know about them and understand them. So there's, there's many others. Uh, uh, empiricism, the value of data, the value of, you know, double-blind experiments to tell us whether or not something works. The value of, you know, uh, um, secular people tend to value empirical ways of knowing the world rather than, uh, you know, um, kind of just closing our eyes and hoping. Or, you know, yes, we have hope, but nothing replaces the scientific method in trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I tried to articulate. So my, my point was that it's not that secular people have a monopoly on these virtues, just like Buddhists don't have a, a monopoly on acceptance or Christians don't have a no monopoly on forgiveness or Jews don't have a monopoly on justice or whatnot. But the idea was that these are prominent in secular culture. And you can even see it in studies that, that show um, these things like a, a cost Cosmopolitanism is a secular virtue. Cosmopolitanism is, is a kind of universalistic view that we're all one community on planet Earth. And what you find in, in, is that, in fact, secular people are less ethnocentric, less nationalistic, and have a more universalistic, uh, universalistic uh, value system. So these are some of the things I, I study and observe and want the world to know about. And that's one thing that I like about Stoicism. They were big on cosmopolitanism or being citizens of the cosmos. And their whole thing was striving to be virtuous or striving for excellence of character, not for, in the religious sense, an afterlife or heaven. It's not that sort of achievement. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, Absolutely. so what's wrong with drawing from, you know, Christianity or secularism and Buddhism, just drawing from the things that you think make a, can build a virtuous person? Nothing. I think it's great. I think that we should draw from as many sources as possible in in developing our character and developing virtues that make life better for ourselves and others. So if there's there's wisdom to be found in all the great religious traditions because they were created by people over time. And I think there's wisdom in humanity. But, you know, you contrast that to like I just mentioned earlier, William Barr, our top cop in America, our attorney general, who gave a speech in Notre Dame saying only only a Jesus-based Christian worldview is is the is the answer. And without it, everything crumbles. There can be no moral culture. There can be no civil society. So that's what freaks me out. Or, you know, anybody who thinks that we're the only one and all else is problematic. So I say, hey, read read the teachings of Joseph Smith. Read the Talmud. Read the Torah. Read the Bhagavad Gita. Read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I, I, I read the Stoics. Read read Shakespeare. Like to me, uh -huh. it's all a treasure trove of wisdom, and and there's so much there to be had. And and again, that's that secular virtue of free thought, right? Where where 
I know religious people who don't want their children exposed to other ideas. They don't want their children to read the Quran. They don't want their children to learn about Scientology. They don't want, you know, there's this fear that like ideas could be dangerous. They could, they could threaten your eternal salvation or they could, you know, disrupt you. And, but I think secular parents are much more open to saying, oh, you want to learn about Mormonism? Yeah, go check it out. Oh, you want to learn about Islam? Go check it out. Learn about it. Read about it. Ask questions. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh huh. But there's the hypothesis that if people turn away from God and stop being religious, then crime will go up. Corruption will increase and decency will diminish. If this were true, we'd see a higher quality of life among the most religious communities. But what do you find? Just the opposite correlation. Uh, I was just looking at this yesterday. The Czech Republic is arguably one of the most atheist societies on earth. The Philippines is arguably the most God-believing. The murder rate in the Philippines is 30 times higher than in the Czech Republic. Japan, which has never had a foundation of Christianity, never been a biblical society ever. Japan is the most, one of the most secular nations in the world today. Um, El Salvador, El Salvador is steeped in Catholicism, steeped in Christianity. It's one of the most religious societies. The murder rate in El Salvador is 80 times higher than Japan. On almost every measure of societal health and well-being, whether it's – oh, you can even look in the, in the states. I was comparing the 10 most religious states in the US to the 10 least religious. Murder rates are way higher in the most religious states. Gun violence is way higher in the most religious states. STD rates, DUI rates, um, poverty rates, like on any measure – Almost any. There's a few that are outliers, but on almost every measure of societal health and well-being, whether it's poverty, crime, democracy, freedom, liberty, women's rights, uh, domestic abuse, you name it, secular societies tend to fare much, much better than um, the most religious societies. You can just look at overall quality of life indexes, the, the 30 countries with the best quality of life overall. So that takes into account everything from wealth and prosperity to peace to healthcare are among the most secular societies in the world today. Not, it's, they're not doing so well because they're secular. In fact, it's probably the other way around. They, they, they are faring better, so the need for religion goes away. But the claim that without belief in God, and with an atheists are underrepresented in prisons, not overrepresented. Um, the idea that we need God to be moral is false and demonstrably false. You can, uh, heck, you can even look at the United States. I was looking at this yesterday. Uh, the so-called you know rise of irreligion in America, the rise of the nuns. So God belief has gone down in the last fifty years, and affiliate uh, and affiliating with a religion has plummeted in the last fifty years. In those same fifty years, the crime rate has gone down by half. And uh, the poverty rate has gone down precipitously. Again, these things are just correlated. It's not that one's causing the other, but clearly secularization doesn't result in societal decay or moral decay. These things can happen simultaneously. What it takes is, you know, good government policies, rational laws, humane institutions, democratic structures. Those are what causes good societal outcomes. And they're all this worldly. They're secular in, in nature. It's not, you know, atheistic necessarily, but that's what causes a good moral society, not faith in God or its lack of faith in God. Uh huh. Does it concern you at all that maybe with this rise in secularism that some of the incredible traditions and rituals like marriage and social gatherings or holidays will, will go away? Yes and no. I mean, the only constant is change, right? I mean, life changes. I'm more concerned about people staring at screens all day than, you know, 
than not celebrating the 12 nights of Christmas. I don't know. To me, yes, I love ritual. I love holidays. I love celebrations. Yes, it's sad any time a tradition, whether it's a Native American tradition, whether it's a Sufi tradition, you know, fades away. It's sad when languages fall away. You know, my my family spoke Yiddish for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Yiddish is dead. You know, it was murdered by the Nazis and no one speaks Yiddish anymore. So, yes, I'm sad to see... Um, Certain rituals uh, decline. On the other hand, I don't fear they'll be replaced. New ones emerge, right? Um, and that's the nature of human civilization, right? The old fades, the new comes in, and every generation is sad about what was lost and, you know, is bitter about what's new. But that's just that's the way it goes in humanity. It's, it's There's nothing to do about it. I'm sad people don't listen to albums anymore. I'm sad that people don't, you know, that they just have songs. I'm sad that, you know, no one knows who fucking Led Zeppelin is anymore, but what are you going to do? <laughs> well, I think the underlying fact is just that, you know, a lot of these rituals breed togetherness and we don't want to lose out on that. On that front, you are absolutely right. I totally agree. Um, there was a famous sociologist, Emil Durkheim, who wrote a lot about the power of religious ritual to bind people. And I, I agree with you. I, I, I do worry that nothing's like what will replace those community bonds. I mean, people that are religiously active and engaged uh, have greater social capital. They tend to have happier marriages. Their children tend to do better in school. They tend to live longer. They tend to have less uh, ex experiences of depression. I mean, there's no question that being enmeshed and involved in a religious community has tremendous benefits. Um, not just the rituals, but the community, the intergenerational bonding, the opportunities for charity. So I do worry that when, if, as religion fades and falls apart and withers, at least in the United States. I, I can't speak to other societies that have different models. You know, that, that congregational model I just described is not universal. It's not, doesn't exist in Thailand, for example, um, you know, but, 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 or, or many places, but here in the United States, that congregational model has been a mainstay of our culture and our society, that, that regular gathering uh, for community, for charity, for values, for rituals. And as that um, crumbles. I do worry. I, 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 I'm happy to share that. I, I, I do think, well, what's going to replace that? Are we all just going to become rugged individualists and social capital is going to go down and we won't have communities to rely on. And, you know, we, we, we won't have that, that people there for us when we're in need, the way religious communities are for their members. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all of those beautiful things can exist without names and labels. It's like the names and labels are just containers and containers we want them so we can control and manipulate them and they that can stall human progress. So, I mean, the, the question is, can we live a moral life without naming it? Oh, for sure. No question. We do. We do every day. Okay. So who comes to mind when you think virtuous? Um, I guess the first, um, the first person that came to mind was a woman named Sophie Scholl. Um, she was a German Christian young woman in Germany during world war II. She was a student, a college student, and she and her brother and some of their friends were horrified by Hitler and what the Nazis were doing, and they wrote some pamphlets critiquing Hitler and urging the German people to resist Hitler's government. This is in during, you know, Hitler's already in power, World War II is already underway, and they formed an organization called the White Rose, and they and all they did was write some 
literally just some pages, you know, denouncing Hitler, denouncing Nazism, urging Germans to resist and, and, you know, rise up against Hitler. And they distributed those, they got a little printer, printer, uh, and they printed a bunch of mimeographed copies of these, uh, of these declarations and, and dispersed them around the campuses in, in Munich. And, for that, Sophie Scholl was arrested and had her head chopped off in a guillotine. Holy so to shit. me, she yeah, she represents – she also spoke bravely and courageously at her trial. She spoke bravely and courageously to her um, – you know, the people that investigated her and interrogated her. Um, she was just to me a model of heroism, altruism, love, courage, um, you know, so that's just the first person that I guess. So I guess people to me that that take a stand for the suffering of others, even at risk to their own life, people who are willing to um, make the world a better place, even at risk of their own well-being. Those to me are the are the kind of moral virtuous beacons in the world. And then, you know, and then I guess not giving such a grand example, because there's very few of us can be Sophie Scholes. I would say in my own life. The virtuous people I know are the ones who seem to be more appreciative and less jealous. Like they seem to be content with those around them, happy with their lives, happy with their family and friends, and not always seeking to gain, you know, oh, I want a better this or I want more of that. I want to be richer. I want to have a better this, a better that. Um, so I think the virtue of kind of accepting your life and being grateful for it and appreciating it to me that's a very wonderful virtue i would agree with that is there a practice or idea that has most positively impacted your life yeah the practice of honesty <laughs> um practicing being honest and authentic and i know that i don't know if that's what you meant but i have learned i'm 50 years old now and my when i met my wife um and we were dating in our early 20s, she was really good about telling when I was not being honest or authentic or insincere. And she really would always call me on it. And it sometimes was uncomfortable and sometimes I got defensive. But I think that was one of the things I fell in love with her for because she forced me to be honest. And she's a very honest person, brutally honest. And I have found that my life is better when I not just tell the truth and like, you know, don't lie, but like being honest about what you're feeling, being clear, having a clear line between what you're really feeling and what you're expressing, either physically or verbally or emotionally. That to me, and it's a practice because it's not easy. Uh, there's, we go through life and it's very easy to be disingenuous. It's very easy to be insincere. It's very easy to ingratiate ourselves with people for other reasons. It's, and it's sometimes easy to lie. And I found that, um, you know, truth just does set you free yeah i would agree with that it's like there's there's radical honesty but then there's also unnecessary honesty that's for sure yeah no i i would never tell someone i thought their kid was ugly or something and then um and then i'd say more recently in my life playing soccer on sunday mornings has been a real benefit and going to yoga has been a real benefit but that's just in the last five years or so yeah i wish i could take up yoga it's just one of those things can't pull the trigger on it so is there a book that you're reading right now there is. I am reading. Uh, <laughs> it's funny you should ask. Let's see. I'm reading two books right now. One is, I think it's called The Trial and Ex the Blasphemies of Thomas Aikenhead. Uh, it's written by a historian. Thomas Aikenhead was the last person to be 
killed for blasphemy in in Scotland and England. It was in the late 1600s. He was a college student in Edinburgh. He said he didn't believe in the the Gospels. He thought Jesus was just a magician. And for saying things like that, he was tried and hanged at the tender age of, I think, 20. And it's it's a really interesting historical account of that execution and what it meant for British and Scottish society. And I'm also reading a book called The Witches by Stacy something or other, which is about the Salem Salem witch trials. Uh, and it's really well written. And it's I'm 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 really learning a lot about, you know, early Massachusetts and the early Ma- the bay, the colony there and what the hell was going on with those Salem witch trials. So those are the two both works of history. Oddly enough, those are the two books I'm reading right now. Very cool. So two more questions for you before we wrap up. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Yeah, that's a tough one because there's a lot of musicians that I love, but I I feel like being a fan, it could be pretty stale to sit and have a beer and just be like, I love that album. I love that song. You're a genius, you know, because I don't know. It, I, I just feel like nothing would come of it and um, we may not have much in common. So I think I'll just let the mus- my favorite musicians uh, stay home for that night. Same thing with writers. I don't know. I think it's hard to just be like, oh, I love this book so much. You're such a genius. You're so amazing. So the uh, so the one I could think of, if I could have a beer or go out for beers with anybody, again, this is another person from history, but there was a guy named Domenico Scandella. Uh, he was a, a miller in Italy in the 16th century. He was his friends called him Minocchio. That was his common name. And he, we have records. It, that's a whole other story. But in the late 1500s, this little miller in a small town in northern Italy, he began to doubt the existence of God, and he doubted Christianity, and he thought the Gospels were forgeries, and he thought that life is a mystery and God doesn't exist and all these things. And he talked about people and he'd get arrested and they'd say, stop that. It's heretical. And he'd stop for a while, but then he'd start up again. And he kept getting in trouble. And eventually he was burned at the stake when he was 70 years old. But I I would want to, I'm fascinated by the, by the fact that someone in the 16th century, just through pure thinking and reason could think like, yeah, I don't believe this stuff. Like, how is that possible? I mean, there's no internet. He's not reading, you know, atheistic diatribes. I mean, atheism is just totally, totally unheard of. And so, and we have the, 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 the Roman inquisition wrote down, you know, the, the, the script of his trials and of his testimonies. So you can read his words and he's being, the inquisitors are asking him questions. And he was just really honest about like, I just don't believe it. I don't think there's enough evidence. I think the gospels are forgeries and blah, blah, blah. So I would love to sit down with him and really understand how the hell he came to these conclusions, why he felt it was so important to say them, even though it could risk his life, why he, so He's my, he, he, you know, an early, early apostate, an early, early atheist from the 16th century. Um, you can read about him in a book called The Cheese and the Worms. It's a famous uh, book, work of history, uh, The Cosmos of a 16th Century Miller uh, by Carlo Ginsburg. So I'm going to pick Minocchio as my, <laughs> my drinking buddy. Interesting answer. So last question, what are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? Uh, always kiss my wife in the morning. Always uh, kiss my kids if they're home. I got two of my daughters are uh, off in college now. Um, always have to have tea in the morning. Always have to have an apple after lunch. 
always like to do a little bit of writing, even if it's just for half an hour. I got to write every day. If I can write for two hours, I'm really happy. And that's pretty much it. Awesome, man. So tell me about your newest book, What It Means to Be Moral. Yeah, it's just my uh, attempt to explain how morality works without God. In fact, not just works, but works better. So the first half of the book is sort of critiquing religious approaches to morality and showing that they're not as great as people think they are, and they actually have some really big shortcomings. And the second half of the book is explaining how morality works without God, without religion, the, the sources of secular morality, the virtues of secular morality, and the ways in which a secular ethic is actually better than a religious one and more needed in the world today. And it was a lot of fun to write. A lot of moral philosophy, a lot of evolutionary psychology, a lot of sociology, some history, some criminology, um, some polemics. So that's my latest book. I can't wait to read it. So where should people go if they want to connect with you? Oh, I am on Twitter, Phil Zuckerman. Um, and I have a website, you know, philzuckerman.com that, that kind of lists my books and where I'm speaking and some videos and that kind of thing. Awesome. All right. Thanks for the conversation, Phil. It was a great time. Thank you so much for your open and thoughtful questions. And I really appreciated it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.